Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for, well, I don't know how long this will be, but it will be another hour of podcasting greatness. That much is for sure. And is brought to you, of course, on uh, every podcast platform you can imagine and YouTube with video here. And as you can see, I am joined this week by Stacey and Jeff Mallinson. Now, this is going to be interesting because we have literally met about two minutes ago. Uh, we have been interacting with a couple emails, but uh, Stacy and Jeff were religious educators, and they found, as Jeff was describing to me, and this is fascinating, and why I reached out to them in the first place, is as religious educators, they found patterns of behavior in the students they were teaching and things that were not necessarily ideal or things that, you know, they thought, mm, maybe something's wrong with this. And, uh, of course, we're talking about religious indoctrination, education, and, you know, my channel here where we talk about cultic thinking and extremist thinking or high control groups. And I found, I thought there might be common cause here to discuss this. And I have had many, many atheist representatives or organizations on my channel in the past who have been fighting against religious indoctrination or abuse, yet... I have tried to make or talked about making inroads with people of a religious persuasion to talk about this with them too, and not just be, well, here's the atheists, and we're the good guys, and here's all the believers, and they're the bad guys, and we have to just do this all the time. So I've invited Stacey and Jeff on to discuss their experience with this and have some conversation about it. So welcome to the show, guys. And Thank thanks you. for your hospitality. <laughs> Absolutely. So why don't, why don't we start first off with a little bit of background. I, I just, you know, gave the briefest of introductions there. So who, who are you guys? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, we've, uh, it's funny that we do this as, a, as kind of a couple, but um, a lot of it has had to do with the fact that um, I, uh, I went and got my doctoral work uh, in the religious history of or philosophy and religion in the early modern period. Um, and I studied at Oxford University under somebody who had connections with a lot of the evangelical world. So it was it was this kind of intellectual history program at a uh, at a you know notable university. But my uh, my networks ended up being very much um, related to people that wanted um, you know religious connection. Uh, that is uh, church related universities uh, has has really been where I've where I've landed professionally. And uh, that wrote me into some things that I didn't expect. You know, I was thinking primarily that that my work would be, you know, discussing the interesting ideas about epistemology in the uh, Enlightenment or something. But over and over, what ended up happening is Stacy and I ended up having to uh, really wrestle with a lot of uh, traumatization from uh, stories of students that we we would have in our home or or we would just we would get to know we'd see that they were they were having trouble and it's always been nice with 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 stacy because a lot of the students i have are female students that have been sexually abused in the context of religious communities and so it's always very helpful for us as a couple to kind of provide that safe safe place for them uh, because as, as i'm sure you've explored on your show uh, one of the problems with cults and and I'm going to include cultic behavior within so you know so-called mainline denominations, um, it's precisely there that people that have been wounded get revictimized by people that that they should trust. And so at first we thought, well, 
maybe it's just, you know, celibacy of Catholic priests or, you know, just these unique gurus. But we started to find that there were these patterns that transcended whatever denominational or religious background they had. It was, it was something about the way they understood what they should think. And I uh, being told how to think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, not, not so they're really not thinking, right. They're just regurgitating at that point. And so we said, you know, the three things that really motivated our, our next phase in life, our, our project with the podcast and, and some materials we're, we're writing uh, was first that bad religious ideas are, are deeply traumatizing. There's some of the worst scars that, that we've been able to, to unfortunately see in young people mm-hmm. and old people, but certainly the, the, the population we usually are chatting with are 18 to 25. And then the second thing is that even things that you might think are true, if you teach in an authoritarian way, that, that deeply harms the, the minds of young people. And that's bad enough. But then the third point, which is the most important to us, is that once you've been trained systematically from you know, Sunday school through a college religion course or something to not trust your perceptions, then you are an easy target for religious wolves. And so that's why we call our show um, Lessons in Outfoxing Religious Wolves. We're hoping, you know, we, we, we have a pretty large, um, you know, group of, or the percentage of our listeners are, are people that are Christian or formerly Christian coming out of those kind of backgrounds, but not always. It could be other religious backgrounds as well. And one of the kind of the, the, the tricks that we've, we've kind of learned or the things that we f- find fun are finding religious voices that help empower people to kind of get get some distance from some of that abusiveness in the religion. So Rumi um, or um, or Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu for people, right? We we want to find people that are religious voices, or at least seem or sound religious. They they are um, they are not like evangelistic atheists, but they might not necessarily assume theism like Buddha or or Lao Tzu. And in our case, we also spend the first, you know, or the second of our seasons was about Jesus, talking about how Jesus actually doesn't just give you permission to avoid bad religion, but really says it's a, an obligation for you. You need to break free from your parental religion if that's what if that's what it takes. And no one told the kids this. What's Nobody. That? I mean, I ne- in fact, they get angry. Some of the young people get angry. They're saying you're telling us to think what we think we should think and feel what we feel. And we've realized every time we have these conversations with students, the very alarm that that idea. Well, and, and Jeff gets in trouble <laughs> brings, when yeah. he's teaching them, you know, that Jesus said, hate your parents, right? <laughs> like that one doesn't go over too well no. with the parents that are sending them there. But it is important. It's important for them to think for themselves and not just do what their parents are asking for. Own their faith if, if they if they have it, you know, just it's one of those things where so much of what we've experienced was focusing on say the life and death or basically the death of Christ and not even on what Jesus taught, you know, mm-hmm. in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I should say though, because you're, you're from a, a, you know, you've got the background with Scientology, yeah. that text, that idea that Jesus says, hate your parents has been used for the breakup of families because of ideology. Right. But what we think that Jesus was really saying is if you are in, in, in these kind of intellectual shackles, uh, from your your parental traditions, um, then what hate your parents means is you're going to have to leave and then they're going to say, why do you hate mom and dad? You know, um, it, wh- whatever your religious tradition is. And once you get a young person thinking that even Jesus said that there are times when you need to leave your religion, that at least opens up the door to a, a more critical examination of what they've been taught. Yeah, for sure. 
where that and all of that fascinating, right? I mean, we're we're same page in many ways here, uh, and that's really cool because I am wondering now because you are believers, right? Because you are, are you have you are Christians, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And we're not always proud of that association. Yes, that's totally true. Clarify. No, no, fair enough. Yep. Fair enough. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 and I'm not trying to put you on the defensive right now. I'm mm. really interested in, in how you guys are approaching this. Um, I have said, and others in the atheist community have certainly agreed, that religious indoctrination at a young age is tantamount to child abuse. Now, mm-hmm. that's a pretty broad statement. And, you know, studying academia and, and getting, you know, d- doing the work I'm doing now, I'm trying to, you know, be a more precise speaker and not speak in, you know, thought-stopping cliches or, or nonsense. And yet it's evident, it's empirically obvious that met much of the religious indoctrination that occurs or certainly many, many examples have been shown through testimony, whistleblowers, people coming forward, victim, you know, survivor testimonials, that their abusive, that their childhood of religious indoctrination uh, was quite abusive. However, obviously, not everybody. So how do we draw lines? How, where do you guys look at where do we draw a line here? Is there an age thing here where a child's brain is developed to the point where maybe critical thinking starts being possible and maybe that's an entry point to start teaching or should it be later even uh, or are we just doing it wrong and it's possible to do it right even with very young people who literally are incapable of questioning what you're telling them i'd like to think maybe about the uh, the way Judaism operates. Mm. And there are certainly forms of Judaism um, where even to this day, you've you've got uh, a, a very sensitive situation where you'd say, well, if I say something critical about this practice, but it's evangelicals doing it, then that's a little bit safer. And so I'm, I'm you know, and I'm sensitive to that. There's there's a problem with anti-Semitism in, in this country. So I, I understand, though, that there are communities, ultra Orthodox communities that I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't recommend. Right. Um, yeah. The, the ultra Orthodox kind of guys in Brooklyn are a bit much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, um, but I think they have, but I think the Jewish tradition had a really uh, very important aspect uh, or, or important understanding of how it taught faith to kids. It was narratives that allowed the kids to start to, to play with these uh, these themes and these images and these narratives that were not always taken the way fundamentalist Christians take them as, um, you, you, you know, these like literal horror stories, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like you understand when, when grandpa sits you down and, and, and is going to tell you some legend that it is legend and that it also has some truth that provides the fodder for dinner conversation. I'm thinking about a Seder feast. There are these, there are these stories that inform the identity of the people and that there are elements to it that are really important for living out. We care for the poor. We, we have an emphasis on not just taking from, um, you know, the natural resources without letting people glean, without providing for workers and, and that sort of thing. It's a, it's a community. It is a, a set of values. And when that happens, I think that's that's very helpful. And a lot of modern people deal with a lot of anxiety because they don't have those communities. The problem was when the communities start to emphasize these metaphysical 
um, uh, doctrines that they demand that people at age 10 start to, to ascend to. And so I think one of the things, if, if your you know, listeners are, are uh, coming out of a bad religious background and don't want to have that taste of anything religious, I understand that. But there's also a way in which young people need that imaginative set of, of archetypes, if you will, uh, to, to, uh, to deconstruct if they must. It's important for them to have the images to deconstruct. The, so it's, I think you had the, the seeds of it in your question, which is uh, the answer in your question. Mm -hmm. which is, it's not really an age, it's a, it's a how. What are we doing with this? I want to explore what Native American uh, grandparents taught their kids about the origin of the world and what this meant for the way they relate to nature. That's an important question that you could have with a five-year-old. Uh, but when you have to tell them what kind of conclusions they have about things that even philosophers have never been able to figure out, that's when it gets a little funky. Well, exactly. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that I also think that we've recently looked into the work of Alfie Cohn, and he talks about that so much of the time, the way that we're raising our kids is from is not from unconditional love. It's more reward and punishment based. Mm. And I think you mix that in with religion, especially it especially becomes dangerous. And I think you can start from a very young age when you're raising your child to start from a point of unconditional love and not about you know, rewards for even for what they're doing or punishments for the bad things, because then they're just going to learn how to appease you. Right. And, and that's where I think it starts, no matter like whatever age you could be from the various littlest baby, the way that you're treating your kid. And I, if you're interested in that at all, I'd highly suggest that you look into Alfie Cohn's work because he's done a lot of research. K-O-H-N. He's a child psychologist and he, and he deals with education in general. Right. And, and I think that's what Stacey's saying is dead on. All of this really relates to fear. You know, so once you start getting fear into kids and that religion is motivated by fear, that's when the whole uh, domino effect of, of trauma, uh, I think, starts to, to really set in. I couldn't agree with you more on that as well. And I, and I, I will check that out. We'll, um, we'll get a link to that. I am thinking right now that you are right on the, I think you have a finger right on the pulse of what might be the exact problem, which is method of teaching and uh, also community-based teaching versus, you know, individual uh, is important, right? When you have you know, a, a, a supportive community that is encouraging critical thinking. And I had to, I almost fell off my chair when I found out years ago that there are Jewish rabbis who are atheists. Yeah. I, I, I just, what? You know, talk about messing with my worldview of, you know, this is how the world works and this is, you know, and, and all, all representatives of any faith are obviously not atheists. And they, the, uh, and I have been impressed by the level of critical thinking that is not just uh, tolerated, but encouraged in Jewish communities outside of the, you know, obvious I, cultic situations like the ultra-Orthodox guys, where that's a very cloistered world and that's there, it's us, it's very us versus them, whole different paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, teaching children uh, the us versus them thing and that, you know, we have the truth and nobody else does and we're the righteous ones and nobody else is, that, that there are so many obvious reasons that's a bad idea um, and contributes to the divisiveness that we're now experiencing in our, in our culture more than ever before. So, so with education then, this becomes pretty important 
Um, there's a lot to this. You know, you, uh, you also mentioned fear. Uh, really important because we naturally, organically are uh, driven to or, or are responsive to a fear-based message, I think, four or five times more. You know, there's various science on this, but, you know, we're going we're gonna to hit those messages and pay more attention to them probably about four times more than we would a positive message. We're kind of drawn to that. Oh, that's a threat. That's something I should be afraid of. I have to mm -hmm. pay attention to that. That's the tiger sitting in the corner of the room. That's something you'll have your attention on way more than a pile of candy on the other mm -hmm. corner, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we balance these things? Because we do want our children to be taught to be afraid of things that they should be afraid of. And in some cases, you know, you have people who are raised with belief sets that include an awful lot of fear. Fear of the devil, fear of Satan, fear of sin, fear of the modern world, fear of rock music, fear of African beats. I mean, you get, you know, <laughs> you can go all the way down the line with this. So how do we approach people in that mindset? Right. In that area. And these are the toughest questions, of course, I'm going to first. Right. Is like, how do we deal with these guys who are locked into, you know, an indoctrinated mindset that they've had from childhood and convince them that maybe, you know, they should spare the rod a few times, that maybe it is OK to, to be tolerant of other beliefs? How do we even go there? Well, I first the first thing that kind of came into my mind was actually to sort of challenge um, the idea that we need to be afraid of things, that we need to have mm. fear. I think that there is, there's obviously. We should be wary. We should be wary <laughs> of, of, and stay away from certain things in a way. But to, to, to say that we need to have fear, I think for me, um, if I fear something, then I know I need to look into it and I need to stare that down and look a little deeper and try to figure out what is, what is it that I am afraid of? And so one of the things that I'm you know, wondering too is, so if you're teaching your children to fear certain things, you're trying to have them stay away from it because of what damage it might do to them. But you have to almost kind of look in yourself to say, what are you afraid of that you want to teach this to your child? Right. And that really is something that each person has to do individually. Um, so I'm going to start with that part. Is, yeah. I think that's important. Well, could you give an example of what you're talking about? Because I can see people right now thinking, oh, well, the hot stove or the this or that, very practical things. Well, that's fine. But here we're talking about religious stuff. We're talking about indoctrination now, right? So what would be an example of, 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 of what you're describing there? Well, I think there's it's interesting because there is a lot of, t we've grown up in the church for a long time and we've been told to stay away from certain thinkers and, and stuff like that. And then we didn't even realize that there are, there are things to be learned. I mean, one of the things that Lao Tzu says that is that, um, that we should embrace our success and our failures because we, there, we learn lessons from both. And I think so some of the things where you can look at where some of the arguments go wrong, you can look at, you know, so and then you can even process that and talk that through with your children. Like, here is where I see that there's flawed, you know, reasoning here, arguments here, but staying away from a thinker or even, you know, entirely or even a religion 
um, it just sets them up for when they're on their own and they all of a sudden, you know, get exposed to something, they don't even know how to process it. They hadn't, you know, you didn't do it as a parent with them and now they're on their own and something maybe looks quite attractive. And especially if you did indoctrinate them, then all of a sudden they're going to look to the new thinker that they are looking up to or the boyfriend or girlfriend or somebody else in their life that becomes the influencer. So I would say that all of these, when you're dealing with some of these things, it's best to explore them, not to avoid them, but do it together and talk it through together. Stacy's Stacy's a, a death doula, and um, a lot of times people ask, you know, you know well, first of all, what, what is this? Um, but but people when they're facing death often think that the well the the magic medicine is to think about the afterlife, and uh, and I think Stacy, you would say that that's not always a source of relief. It often isn't. Um, right. Actually, sort of making peace with life and like and all of the unfinished business that people have. Sets, that's where they find true life, right? When you're forced to realize that, you know, I've got an expiration date and here, you know, it's, it's real now. Um, everything else falls away. You know, your job doesn't matter. Your, um, you know, all that matters is your relationships. It starts, you know, starts to, you want, you want to make peace with those you need to make peace with, or just come to terms with who you are. Right. And, and so the afterlife is maybe an element to it, but uh, one of the things I think that was one of the most eye-opening things for me was several years ago, Jeff had told me that he was talking with one of his classes and he, on a Friday said, just for this weekend, just for this weekend, I want you to just act like there's no afterlife. There's no, there's no heaven, right? Just try out atheism for three days and see how it feels. <laughs> He's like, you can have it back, you know, and we'll talk about it on Monday. You'll have it back or whatever if you, you know, if you want. But and I and I realized how much of what I did in my life or, you know, acted was with that mindset rather than what matters right now, living right now. And that's how they can. And then that's how people can control you. Say, well, your, your life is terrible now. You know, I mean, this is what you do to this earth doesn't matter first, because yeah. you're going to be in heaven forever. What you do, you know, you can if you have this argument with this person or whatever, don't worry, because everything's going to be OK in heaven, you know, right. that kind of stuff. And it, it I think it it excuses a lot of unhealthy behavior and actions because, you know, it's that, oh, it's going to be OK. Right. The 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 short summary of that is that what Stacy does is tries to ac- actually help people not fear. Mm-hmm. Now there's, we have, we have anxieties. Like I don't like heights. So if I died by falling off of a cliff, I'm going to hate that. But there's a difference between that physiological response and having that, that core fear yes. of death. Yes. Right? And the core fear of death is what was, what drives you into like silly superstitious things. Mm-hmm. And you'll believe anything. And, and I've found that many, many people uh, that that are even at the level of professors of say the you know b- they study they're Bible scholars. Um, it's not so much that they believe it, but they believe they believe it. To use uh, uh, Slavoj Žižek's idea, that their faith is their faith in their faith, but they don't really they don't really have the comfort that it's true. But they think that if they don't tell themselves that they think it's true, that God's going to punish them and send them to hell. Right, you know, right. and I mean it's just. That's how you can't, you can never get out of that when, when the, uh, the, the fear is what keeps you in. And I would say the same thing could be true for a, a secular, uh, a, a family that was very uh, concerned not to let their kids get caught up in bad religions. And that is don't fear religion either. 
like you don't fear a shark, you learn how to not get in its way. So, so you shouldn't run into death, but you aren't going to do very well always being afraid of death. You shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, jump right in uh, to whatever the, uh, the newest guru uh, in town says you should get into, uh, but it's okay to explore it. And I think what Stacy's drawing from, from Lao Tzu is that, is that it's okay to fail. It's, it's okay to make a mistake in what you thought. And you don't need to be ashamed of it because as long as you're ashamed of it, it's very hard to, uh, to get out of it because you've, you've got this sunk cost fallacy. You've, you've, I mean, well, and society controls yeah. you through shame. And that's one of the ways <laughs> you, know, <laughs> yeah. you spent 20 years in Scientology and then you realize all of that was a waste. That's hard. To, that's hard to deal with that. You're mm-hmm. that if you start to think that your life was a waste, or if you're a pastor that, that says, wait a minute, maybe I've seen this all wrong, but I'm 55. You suppress that out of fear of being a failure. But if you can give yourself permission to have made mistakes then you can have so much more um, joy in your life um, once you're freed, you know? And that's why I think uh, like, so uh, the students are afraid to be atheists. Why is it just try it to see? And I would say the other thing is I'm not, not try- we, we can pick a fight if we need to at some point, but what I really <laughs> do believe is that if, you know, when in doubt, um, you know, atheists are t- typically more trustworthy. I mean, it depends on what your attitude is, what, you know, you're, you hostile um, to people, but uh, you know, good science is methodologically atheist. Good history is methodologically atheist. This was something that um, goes back to Socrates. There's debates about whether or not Socrates should be called an atheist. But if you bring in this fear of some, you know, tribal deity in the sky, that's going to be mad at you if you do your research and it turns out to not agree with whatever that deity told you, uh, that's, that's debilitating. And so being in a place where, at least for us, what, what we like about the teachings of Jesus is the default is acceptance, intrinsic value to the individual, agency for the individual. Um, Un- and in that love. unconditional love, in that context, you can make a mistake. Exactly. And by knowing that you can make a mistake and by having forgiving yourself for making a mistake, that goes a long way. For me, for instance, getting a, a doctorate from Oxford and then realizing, you know, like, oh, maybe I was wrong about this. Um, that maybe I'd wasted all that time and energy, you know, is, is a fear that actually doesn't help me, you know? And I, the reason I'm still in the game is because I find some great value in what, what Jesus uh, taught. Um, but I do it now uh, with a certain kind of freedom to say, if I need to step out of this weirdness, I can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me ask about that because many people in the atheist community who I've been talking to for, you know, the last seven, eight years, and have been in, and pretty involved in that, and um, they come at it, you know, and mo- and many of them are are former believers, yeah, mm-hmm. of one kind or another. Uh, whether you know, I mean, obviously, my unique my my experience was a little unique with Scientology. There aren't lots and lots of Scientologists, right? But uh, there are lots and lots of former Christians. Mm-hmm. And evangelicals, and even former Muslims, and even former Jewish people, even for that matter. Although I, I, I tend to find former—I I mean, I think I've maybe met one person in all the years who was a former Jew, right? You don't really <laughs> run into that very often, and I actually think that speaks a lot to what we were talking about earlier about that. Right, right. The narratives yeah. are still the narratives. The, co- the 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 culture and the community is still part of the landscape. 
It's just how you appropriate it or how you, exactly. you deal with it. But one common narrative, and which I'm sure you've heard in the atheist world, is you don't need religion to be good, good without God, right? Don't need God for morality. Um, but more importantly, that even if these religious parables and stories and metaphors and analogies and, and, and these things that we use to, that could be taught at the level of narratives, not literal truth, because I think things go really off the rails when you, you know, if you taught Aesop's fables and you taught them from the point of view that that fox really was talking to the hound, mm -hmm. right? Like that really happened. That creates a whole <laughs> a whole set I of mean, difficulties. Yeah. yeah, you're taught you're you're engaging in crazy talk now, right? right? But if you use it as a morality play, as a as a you know as a themed story to teach a point or teach a moral lesson, well, a lot of people are not going to have a problem with that at all. So what my question is is in the atheist world though, they would say, well, we don't need any of those biblical parables. Even we don't even need that. Because that's too much. That brings in the, the sky daddy and the reliance on something more than yourself. And that that creates dependency and anxiety and afterlife fear and all this other stuff that just kind of comes with the package. So the atheist narrative is we can throw all of it out and still teach morality, still teach ethics. Now, I'm on the fence about this. I'm actually not, I'm not going to argue this one way or the other. I'm curious about your take on this, though, because this is a thing in the atheist world. We don't need any of it. We're fine without it. What's your, what would be your response to that? Uh, I, I have taught ethics uh, and religious ethics, and I fully agree with the position of the existentialists, uh, and others who say that you do not have to have a belief in uh, in theism to be good. And uh, because we've seen how the sausage is made, I think we can say that by and large, uh, it is it is often the case that people are living uh, that people that are living with the carrot and stick mentality of fear of punishment and hope of reward can be sometimes the least ethical um, because, uh, and this is the, the closest thing to us, um, because they're forgiven, you know, in the Christian context, right? right? So, right. well, I really should care about babies in cages and I should care about police brutality and I should care about drones wiping out towns, but I got the afterlife and, you know, no one's perfect, so I'm forgiven. Right. And uh, and so just and there's, a, yeah. there's the mind splitting, which yeah, explain mind splitting. Well, mind splitting is sort of, you know, that idea. So you go to church, right? And you your Sunday Christian Monday, you go back to work doing your job that maybe, you know, maybe you're, you know, using extremely cheap labor to get the best sales price for, you know, that type of thing. So right. it's you can set aside what might be the things you talk about on Sunday for the rest of your weekly life. Right. And, and that is something that is abusive in people. When you do the mind splitting, the, the results of that um, is some of the same things that, that you get from abuse. It's not an integrated world. So it's right. like churches, like for many people that I know, Churches like Dungeons and Dragons, where it's it's like <laughs> right. really fun, uh, and they and they tend to survive better. I mean, people that stay with it a little bit longer are saying, "Okay, um, there's this magical world that I go to, and then it's all real here." But when I go into my normal workplace, of course, none of it applies. And sometimes that can be adaptive; it can be helpful, um, but at, but at other times, it um, I think it it makes it so that you can say all sorts of, especially for adults, you can say sorts of all or sorts of 
horrendous things that obviously don't work in the real world, but you've already come to terms with how you play this out just on Sundays, but your kids don't. And so then the kids go out, you know, and they have that trouble. So this again is the question of I think, morality. And I think no matter who you are, though, you are going to live in a world of archetypes or certain ideologies. Like there's, you know, certain, um, you know, stories and, and traditions and things that you believe in. And so you're just going to pick what those are. So maybe there's some of the stories from the Bible and maybe there's maybe that's something from the latest movie that you saw in the movie theater. Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's narratives in, in general that are helpful for, for processing. It could be fairy fairy stories, but you're right. I mean, look, if, 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 if you are, if you're worried about some of these, uh, these stories, including these worldviews that are problematic. Yeah, no, I understand. And, and why I was the other reason I was saying that atheists are, are, are by and large more trustworthy <laughs> is because you have to you have to own. I mean, this is what the existentialist philosophers said. You have to own what you do. Are human beings angelic or demonic? Well, let's just let's see. Let's see what you're going to be. So you create human nature. Essentially, you are you are the definition of human nature and it's not predetermined. And, and I think, and, and I, I'm not trying to like make some kind of hustle for Jesus to, to y'all, but I would say that there is, there is a tradition uh, in philosophy that recognizes that Jesus in many ways is, is trying to wrestle with how to be healing in the world where, where you don't pray to a genie in the sky and everything um, is magically made better. That we, we have to sometimes live in these outrageous moments of persecution where sticking up for the guy who who doesn't have any defenders could get you killed. And, you know, one of the things that I always find interesting when I'm, when I'm studying the, the life and teachings of Jesus is the way he dies. This idea of saying, you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a, it's not like a David and Goliath story where you just have enough faith and then you don't have to deal with the real work of living. Right. It's uh, it's, it's like Job and Socrates and Jesus all trying to come to terms with who do we want to be? as human beings, that's an important question. And uh, it's one that many religious people are never offered as an opportunity to say, what, like, who do you want to be other than, uh, you know, who do I want to make you or what kind of clone am I trying to create? Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately it oftentimes gets reduced down to, um, you know, the most common denominators, the simplest possible narrative, the, the easiest thing to digest and explain. Right. And, and it seems that there are people getting maybe moving toward the religious wolves side of this that seem to be aware of that and want to take advantage of it. Uh, and this is in the religious communities. And I'm talking here about, say, documentaries, um, Jesus Camp, you know, these kind of things where they I, I don't know if it was that one or another similar one where they talked about this golden age. I think it was nine or 10 years old. You got to hit them by then. If you hit mm. them hard enough, strong enough mm. at that by that age, they're yours forever. Right. It's a very yeah. 1950s, 40s psychological conditioning you know, behaviorism kind of approach. And, yeah. it's, and it's built completely on the punishment drive, reward drive that you, that you speak of there. And I think that's a very, very foundational point that you're making because there are two different approaches you can take to this. And the punishment drive, reward drive thing is, a, is, a, is an old and even not only outdated but out, and, or outmoded, but, but debunked psychological mm. principle, you know, that this right. is how you should do this. You, you know, it, uh, Skinner, you know, back in the day was talking about how you give me a kid, you know, of a certain age, and I don't care what his background, language, culture, anything is, 
Uh, if I get control of his entire environment, I can determine the outcome. And, and what you guys are seem to be talking about in a much more enlightened way is, no, we have to appeal to each human being as to who do you want to be. You need to set that path, and the parents can put guidelines or can put some rules of, of, of behavior in place to make sure the kid doesn't kill himself, right. but encourage and teach and try to, you know, use a simile and metaphor and, and morality tales labeled as such, not labeled as the literal truth, in order to kind of get them to develop their own thinking. So we seem to see two radically different approaches here. How do we find, how do we encourage these guys who are over on this, you know, and I, and I, maybe this is just a continuation of what I asked earlier, but how do we get to these guys who are so bent on punishment drive? Mm. And get them to, yeah. you know, wake up to, hey, man, that that's that's Dark Ages thinking, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm real sensitive to a uh, frustration that Richard Dawkins has on occasion where he say, oh, well, here's some progressive Christians and they are groovy. But it's still, like you were saying earlier, isn't it just kind of a waste of time? Why don't we scrap the whole thing? Mm -hmm. And there are certainly times when, when you might want to do that. And uh, there's certainly a way in which sometimes progressive Christianity is, is kind of uh, grasping at straws. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I get that. that and I, I don't think that's exactly what I, I think I'm trying to get religious people to do, mm. because I think um, it, it's always where we've had the impasse where I say, well, before we can really do this right, I need to I need to explain to you how you've been misreading the Bible. And there are many times when I just I need to do that. I want to do that. Mm. Right. The uh, kind of maybe the classic example would be this idea that at any moment uh, the the Bible is saying that all these believers are going to get vacuumed up into heaven. That's a 19th century invention. Now, whether you believe that the Bible is divinely inspired or not, it's kind of helpful if you talk to your Christian friends and say, that's not really what the Bible says. And that's going to have an effect on how you deal with foreign policy and the environment. You know, at, at one level, I care about that. But it's very difficult to say, for instance, if I have a student who is uh, LGBT, um, who has very conservative family, for me to say that the only way for me to heal that relationship with their parents and give them space to not feel afraid to go home at Thanksgiving break is not going to be for me to have a 45 minute conversation with grandpa mm -hmm. and tell him that he misunderstood the old Testament, you know, <laughs> um, it's just not going to work. They're going to say, Oh, well, here's some devil devil faculty member trying to corrupt my, my kids. What I'm begging for everybody to do is to maintain first and foremost the ability of that individual student to have agency over their own beliefs in life. And if you can do that, then I think that the, at least the first step is a truce between grandpa or dad and mom and the student, a truce to say, we are so proud of you for thinking through these things on your own. And we unequivocally support that. And we think, I mean, even at some point, if they have to say, we think that if you become a Buddhist, that you're going to go to hell. And that makes us nervous. I think I need to allow space for that as well, at least up front, so that they um, are able to be in that dialogue and they maintain the uh, the relationship. Sometimes they have to get out of a relationship. There's no doubt. But I'm, my appeal is often to conservative parents to say that the uh, the practical effect of that idea of using the, the you know the, the, the psychology to um, to manipulate really uh, young converts um, in the long run is a failed endeavor.
It just doesn't work. So if you cut a, a LGBT student out of your life as a conservative Christian, um, there is no chance, almost no chance they're ever going to come back around to your way of thinking if that was important to you, right? You're going to lose the relationship and they're not going to be in your tradition. Uh, however, if you unequivocally accept and love this student and then just talk through what you believe uh, genuinely, then there is a mutual respect that actually fosters, I think, everybody's well-being. Right. Right. Some of the most damaging things is stuffing these poor kids into a certain box and saying, this is what you need to look like. This is how you need to act. This is what you need to believe, no matter what it is. Right. And then not accepting for who they really are. And that when you do talk about, um, you know, you don't want to kill your child, that is one of the main ways that you can get dangerously close to that, if not do that, um, because they they're not comfortable even in their own skin or who they are, you know, no matter what they believe. So I don't think that you get, you don't get anywhere with that. Um, you just more hiding is what you get. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, go ahead. The last thing I was going to say is that what you were talking about too, was definitely um, a hunger for power. You know, and we want to tell people how to believe that is not, that is, I mean, a lot of people, they, they maybe want money, they want power, you know, glory, I don't, you know, whatever, there's various things that people are striving and so striving for. And I think that um, those that do want that power, they're going to, they're going to want to control, right? They're going to, so one of the things is just recognizing where they're coming from, that that's, you know, what is important to them to is to control that then you can at least start to break free of their control. I got a, uh, Chris, I got a, a, a little uh, history lesson. Uh, if I can throw in real fast Please. and, and I don't, uh, I don't always love hanging out with the Baptists. I'll, I'll admit, <laughs> um, but in the history of the Baptist tradition, there was some really groovy uh, uh, aspect. There was an, a groovy aspect to what they were about. They had come from persecution in Europe and Baptists were actually against the Sunday school movement because they had been indoctrinated into Catholicism or into the church of England. And they knew how painful that was. They said, we're going to have our own beliefs and yes, they're going to be very devout, but you're not really going to be in that game until you're uh, an adult, whatever that means, you know, it could be like a bar mitzvah age. It could be 18, but they actually were against it. And Stacy and I had a really weird run in with the Amish in, um, in Florida, we, we didn't realize we, there were these frat boys and I thought I had to get in a fight with them and they ended up stealing our, our uh, computer and passports. They got them back. But, but they, were, they were kind of juggling between this very religious closed community or, and uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I will caution, though, the, 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 the Baptist tradition on this, and that is that there's a way in which that also was manipulative. Because what they did, what the Amish do to keep you in mm -hmm. is give you the illusion of utter freedom. Mm -hmm. And what you do is if you, you know, if you're not from California, maybe you don't realize that eating an entire weed brownie is bad. You know, it's going to make <laughs> you feel like you're dead. Right. Um, but if you're an Amish kid and you've never even seen a bag of weed and all of a sudden you eat, you know, you're in Miami or something and you're doing drugs, you're, you're drinking a couple of these, you know, fish bowls of punch. You're going to be puking. You got an STD. You're arrested and all this. And then by the time you get home, you say, Lars, 
The world out there is too <laughs> scary. And so there are ways in which we, and uh, we got into that conversation because these guys were sitting on the patio making these terrible cat calls towards these women. So I'm like, OK, I'm going to come over there. I'm going to have a conversation with these guys, because if well, I don't know what they're after, but I'm, I was kind of curious because what I think you're trying to get is not going to get you anywhere. Right. And it's very disrespectful to the women that are walking by. Right. And so that's where we started the conversation and found out that they were on their own rom- Springer and. And so, you know, like one, one way that this could also hit really close to home is, you know, in my own world where we've, we've, we've danced really close to, to some pretty, you know, very conservative uh, types of uh, belief and, re- and religious folks. Um, I, I earlier on, uh, when you mentioned Jesus camp, part of my, my backstory is I was the, uh, I was the dean of the uh, theology and philosophy department at Colorado Christian University. And it was rather um, uh, open place uh, when I was there. We had, you know, Episcopalians and Presbyterians and and by and large say they would be politically liberal and um, would not have read the Bible in, in a very literalistic way. Uh, but they they clamped down on that pretty, pretty hard by putting in a, a guy who was a famous Republican senator uh, named Bill Armstrong. He had dropped out of college, didn't really like education, thought it made you a Democrat, made you lose your faith and, and kind of, you know, came in heavy on that. And they were going to put Ted Haggard in uh, as the, the president and I, which I opposed. And so he was kind of my nemesis for a while down there. But if you'll notice his, what was his downfall? I mean, this is what I tell parents all the time. The downfall was not being uh, honest and open about his own life, destroyed his, his family. It destroyed his own career. It, it made him be, be very dangerous and risky. And you know what? There's some parents that just don't care, right? They, they'll, they'll sacrifice their children to the God Molech, man. They'll just, they'll sacrifice right. their children. But for, for at least a good number of parents that love their children, if I can just show them how much damage these well-intentioned maybe uh, practices, uh, how much damage that, that they're doing and, and that they could lose their child to suicide or at least um, really debilitating uh, anxieties, uh, my, my hope is that they don't have to start by changing their own beliefs. Now, you might, after giving yourself permission to let your kids start thinking for, you, for themselves, you might give yourself permission to do that. But right. I, I'd, I'd caution, you know, like, like atheists to say, just as, just as it's not very helpful for us to try to impose religious views on somebody like with Stacey, if, if she's dealing with a dying person, she needs to coach that person to start seeing things as they actually see them rather than as she sees them. So if she has somebody who's, who's terrified about the afterlife professionally, she's not supposed to go in there and, and tell them, well, that's dumb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't really work, right. but she can ask questions. She can help them to, to Process it. yeah. See things from a different see, angle. Yeah. See where it's coming from, you know, and, and get to the bottom of it and then face that. Yeah, absolutely. And that sounds, uh, you know, pretty healthy. Hey, everyone, I wanted to take this opportunity to talk to you about a service that I am endorsing and that I truly, truly believe in. And that service is called BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp. And they are available through BetterHelp.com. And this is a service that connects you 
with a licensed professional counselor online so you can get help with depression, anxiety, stress, or just somebody to talk to in this very, basically, very troubled times that we're living in right now. It is not easy to get out there in the big wide world right now. It is not easy to get out and see therapists or counselors. It is not easy to find counselors or therapists who can help you. And this is what BetterHelp was designed to assist you with. The simplicity of this is you go to the site, you sign up, actually you use the link <laughs> that I have provided below, uh, which is betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton, and you get signed up, and this can be for as little as $40 a week, and they actually even have uh, financial aid available. You enter some information, fill out a questionnaire about yourself, and you get hooked up with a counselor that will help you out. And this can be via text, via voice, or via a video, okay? Any one of those. It's up to you and your comfort level. And if the therapist that you get connected with isn't doing the job that you feel you need, you can ask for and get a different counselor. So there are a lot of options for you in this, and it is really something that I think a lot of my viewers should be taking advantage of. I have talked often about the need for or the help that you can get through professional counseling. Sometimes you need somebody who really does know what they're doing and not just a friend or family member to listen. And that's why this service is something that I am happy to put out there for you guys. So again, use the link below, betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton. That is in the description to this video. And I hope that you um, can get the help that you might need from this service. Let me know how it goes. I, I I have to ask you about the Ramspringa thing. I I, mm. I continually mispronounce that word. It's 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 a uh. difficult word. But <laughs> but I have had mixed feelings about that. And it's interesting what you said. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about it because it sounds like you might know more about it. I was under the impression and have been difficult. It's been difficult for me to judge the Amish. Certainly a cloistered community. Certainly a a, a strenuous belief set, we might say, right? Very, very strict. You have very strict yeah. rules in, mm -hmm. in the Amish community. But the churches are in the homes. There is no central place that they all go to. There's no one central person they're all listening to. It's really not your classic charismatic leader cult model. It's a tightly knit community that chooses voluntarily, and that's a huge deal with destructive cults, mm -hmm. When informed consent exists, you really don't have undue influence. I mean, these two things don't go together. If you know what you're getting into and you choose to do it, this is why I can't come down on Catholic monasteries because they try to keep you out. they like, are you sure yeah, yeah, yeah. you want to do <laughs> yeah, this, right? right? And I was under the impression that Amish communities were similar with that, with that tradition because uh, you're free to go. You know, and if you don't want to come back, you don't have to. And it's kind of up to the father of each household as to how shunned that individual is going to be, as opposed to a community-wide dogma. Am I on the right page with this, or am I missing something? No, you're totally on the right page. I okay. think, you know, sometimes when I talk, I want to make sure that people don't think that there aren't subtle manipulations. Of course. I, I think it's, very, you yes. know, so so yeah. I wish to goodness, <laughs> I say for your atheist world, um, no, I wish, I wish that every religious community would have something like a Ramspringer and that yes. would be uh, assumed 
you know, everybody, we're going to say, this is a time where we, we don't want you get a second opinion. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's really good. I think though, that it's disingenuous for some of these Amish communities because of the way they set it up, sending kids. I'm, and maybe they just don't know any better. But right. like I said, right. sending kids to where they might accidentally eat a whole weed brownie is is not actually giving them the real taste of what life is like. It is a false taste that allows them to get their um, their kicks, but to realize what the hangover feels like. And that's the last thing they felt. Exactly. I'll, I'll give you another example. There was a, a, um, a <laughs> I was at a Modest Yahoo concert. Modest Yahoo um, was uh, from Crown Heights. Uh, he became very religious. Um, he's a reggae rapper. And um, he was the Hasidic Jewish rapper, Hasidic, Hasidic Jewish uh, reggae guy. Wow. Uh, and then one day he realized how toxic this was to his life. And he went in and he, and he shaved his beard. And he said, it's not that I'm no longer religious. I just let go of the doubt was one of his lines. And it was, I think, um, the kind of template that I like. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but that that freedom came with, again, the loss the loss of his wife who refused to leave that community and that, and that sort of, sort of thing. So the, yeah, the Amish have those families, but, but that shunning is similar in some ways to the control that Scientology has over a family. You will lose something really important to you. Right. And, um, and I, so I would just say that, yeah, I wish everybody had a Ramsbrenner of some kind, <laughs> um, but, but you need to be able to, to put people in touch with folks that really can show them what life would be like, not in terms of self-destructive decadence, but thriving. Surely the Amish could know that there are some people that are happy and well-fed and doing well and sane within a broad secular context. Right. Uh, but to, but to go to Miami where, you know, Miami or new Orleans or something, it's um, uh, I think that's a, that's a false, that's a false uh, playground. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And uh, of course, similar experience with former with kids who grew up in Scientology, uh, like in the cloistered world of Scientology, the deep yeah. part, um, never had public schooling. Right, right, right. Never had the experience out in the real world. And then they come to 17 or 18 and they're like, well, I really don't like it here. But they have no idea what the real world's like. They hit the real world one for one for one. Drugs, alcohol, partying all night, losing their job, getting another, you know, all the right. just it, it, they just have this orgy of awful that they kind of have to experience before they level out. And, right. you know, and fortunately, there were very few real casualties of that. But there were some. You know, there mm -hmm. were there were there were losses that we, we lost a couple people because of that. Mm -hmm. So can I ask you, can I ask you a question about this? Because yeah, yeah, um, it, it does relate to my world, but it's a it's just a different analog. I, I want to think of, I want to ask you about squirrels. I want to ask you okay. about people who <laughs> yeah. believe in the methods of Dianetics, but they don't like the the structure of the Church of Scientology today. Yep. What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I'll just throw it out generally because I think sure. there's there's a there's a value to allowing somebody to to have that lily pad to jump to. Mm -hmm. I, I see. Think? Yeah, exactly. It's two it's two different kinds of people. In that, you know, you can kind of Venn diagram it to two different sets of people. Um, and by squirrels, of course, for those of you out there, we're talking about people who are now what are more commonly known as independent Scientologists. 
They're separate from the church, but they still consider themselves Scientologists. So they still fully believe in L. Ron Hubbard as a you know genius philosopher, researcher, and they still want to use some aspects of, and they cherry pick what they're going to take out of Scientology because you can't take the whole of it because literally part of Scientology is this is the only Scientology. If you go out, you're you're a horrible, awful person. So they have to obviously cherry pick that stuff out. And yeah. they usually pick out some of the more authoritarian, nonsensical, crazy stuff, too. Um, I see those people as um, mostly a way stop on the way all the way out. It's a it's a transition period because they're still adjusting. Little- yeah. It's Scientology is an all consuming mindset. This is what destructive right. cults are all about. And. Um, and the worldview is intense, and it's and it's very it's very particular. And there's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of language. There's a lot of thought patterns that are very specific to Scientology. So you come out of that, and then you have to look at you know the big wide world and acclimate to it. And even if you weren't hardcore like I was, where you go all in, if you're involved in Scientology as a, even as a as a public person, as we call them, for you know five years, ten years, twenty years. You're in. You're deep. You know, you've yeah. really bought into a lot of stuff. So there is always going to be a recovery or acclimation process or whatever you want to call it. And that's often part of that stage. Part yeah. is a stage in that. Then there are a much smaller group of people. I mean, we're talking about a few hundred people all around the world. Maybe if I was really going all out, uh, you know, 1,500 people right who still believe and will always believe in it and never give it up and they resist recovery or acclimation or any information that's going to counter the scientology narrative i'm not really sure what to say about such people except that somehow for whatever reason l ron hubbard and scientology fulfill their emotional needs and um, short of a full-blown intervention you're not going to change their mind and if they're not doing anything really awful I don't care. Yeah. You know, and in fact, maybe it would, I'm sorry. Did you want to ask me more about that? No, I mean, I think keep going because that's this important. Okay, cool. Well, what I wanted to, where I wanted to build on with that was, um, there's, there's a thing about religion. There's a little thing I say, or I put out there about religion. And I want to know what your, what your take is on what I have to say here. Um, because the word religion, as you know, as an Oxford-trained scholar, the word religion is a pretty intense word, and it has yeah. a number of different definitions or ways or aspects, I guess you could say. There is, and I've divided it sort of into, this is my little pet thing, right? I've divided it into three sort of things, right? There's religious belief, just in your head. It's what you yourself carry around. It's individual for you. It's probably as individual to you as your DNA. Then there is religious practice, which is what you do with those beliefs, how you manifest them, right? And then there is organized religion, when we get together in groups and we start setting rules and guidelines and morals and, and, and you know, laying out what this philosophy is all about and uh, this is how you must live your life and this is where the dogma comes in. 
And I see religion, I see the word religion apply to each one of these things. And sometimes confusedly, sometimes people are thinking they're talking about one when they're actually talking about another. I almost wish there were separate words yeah. for each of these three aspects. Because when you use the word religion, for example, religion sucks. Well, which one? Because <laughs> when I say that, I'm mostly talking about organized religion. I'm not talking about religious belief. But a religious believer will hear me say religion sucks and go, well, you're saying my belief sucks. Or I suck. Or you, so exactly, right? They've right. identified with it and now it is them, right? When you're talking about religion, you're literally talking about them as, a, as an individual personality. So, so this, this tends to, it seems to me that, these, that this itself can be the cause of a great deal of confusion and even antagonism. Right, that confusion can go straight to the the nasty stuff. What do you think about what I just said? Uh, I love it, and it, there are there are Christians that will sometimes try to 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 grab hold of this. You know, I'm I'm a, and and they would be the spiritual but not religious type Christians. Right. A lot of and then a lot of religious Christians say, "Oh, that's terrible." Well, of course it's terrible because it threatens their their power, uh, the the clerical power. Um. So. I would love it if we all got on board with saying that religion is the is the edifice that reinforces people's conformity through fear. You know, mm -hmm. that, uh, the the religare, the the Latin to bind together. Well, you know, if you're binding together a community like we were talking about with, um, you know, a, a chill Jewish family, uh, then that's great. You know, uh, so that they're not assimilated into the larger Western world without their their uniqueness. Uh, if you're talking about binding me shackling me that ain't that ain't very good that ain't very good at all i uh stacy and i are, are more um in a tradition you know i think we best describe it as lutheran mystic which is pretty rare mm. uh, but i i'm more interested in this idea of the, the mystical tradition which is i think even compatible uh and i really i really mean this compatible with just about anybody and also not f and found in almost every religious tradition if we use that um could you help clarify something yeah. for me, actually? Let me, ask, let me interrupt you real fast, because yeah. I, I, I hear this word often, and perhaps I'm you know, the only person in this conversation or, or, or audience who doesn't really get this, but, mm. but I, I doubt it. When you no, use the yeah. word mystic, <laughs> yeah. it brings to mind seances and, uh, you know, and the occult and things like that, to my mind. Could you clarify how that, what that word means in this context? Yeah, thank you so much. Because you know, in my own tradition, people will say, "Oh, you're a mystic. That means you're you're like charismatic. You think you're getting these voices from God." Mm -hmm. And that's partly because in the Middle Ages there would be people, and uh, I hypothesize that, that I, I really believe that some of them were probably taking medicines that included uh, psilocybin mushrooms. And this is <laughs> right. like some wacky, but I just think they were. I think like um, yeah. uh, like Julian of Norwich may have or something. Um, so um, so th you do see that in the tradition, but but. Uh, Evelyn Underhill is a, an author who from England, she wrote on this. Magic is what we usually call mysticism. That is mm. um, magic is trying to, to in a, like kind of a superstitious way, grab hold of supernatural forces to do um, powerful things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mysticism is a state of mind. It's an awareness. It's a, uh, it's a sense of peace for, uh, for Taoists, for uh, Buddhists, Zen Buddhists. It does not require any belief really whatsoever other than direct awareness it's the be here now it's the live in the present uh let go of your your resentments of the past do not worry about the future 
and uh, focus on the on the wonderful gifts that we have that we're that we're still alive. And uh, and I believe, and the reason I like this this uh, handle of mysticism is it it really to me helps us to to transcend a lot of these things that that do divide us. Not that there aren't big divisions. It's that no joke the the scientist who has the ability to really understand what he's looking at or she uh, at a at a nebula through a telescope is having a a kind of experience, a mystical experience. Yep. And it's, and we sometimes call it a religious experience, but I'd like to stick with the idea that it's a mystical experience. It is that sense of the sublime and wonder. And, and the reason this is important is because I think a lot of people stay in abusive religious communities too long because they think that, okay, it's probably true that, athe- that atheism has something to offer me or, or at least my rejection of this religious community, but I'm going to lose meaning. Right. The world is going to become black and white. And I want to say that that if that's what's keeping you in your in your cult, <laughs> which probably is right. I mean, your sense of meaning and all this, there's this there's this I'm important now. I'm, I'm saving the world um, to just receive. And Stacey, maybe just mention like why, you know, why we use the Tao Te Ching there for. We, we deal with a lot of people from Christian backgrounds, but our focus now is to help walk people from those backgrounds through the Tao Te Ching because it offers, I think, some of that. Yeah, there's, it's interesting because in sort of diving into the Tao Te Ching, um, it really has even informed my Christianity because it, I, there's a, 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 a depth there um, that has got, you know, I don't know, that has, it, it has added to it. But I think that it, it's that it's, the Tao Te Ching can also be sort of that lily pad that I think Jeff was talking about mm. too, where you still, I mean, I there are people that still feel like they're deeply spiritual beings. They've just been in abusive versions of it or don't really know, you know, how to see their way out of it. So it does help to sort of put your um, mind or allow you to still like ponder on some of these thoughts and, and the, you know, the, the way that, you know, the, the fact that the Tao is the way, right. And what does the way look like and how, you know, how can we then live? Um, and I guess with the we say Dow surfers because of the 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 flow of reality, of, of the reality, right? Nature, life, and so you can call it spiritual. I guess. I mean, for for us, most people don't realize that like Taoism isn't really. I mean, the Lao Tzu's for version. It's not requiring any belief whatsoever in God. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the original Buddha, uh, you know, if, if he exists historically. When they asked him, you know, is there is there a life after death? He says, I'm not sure I understand how to live in this world. Why? Why do you think I've got something to offer you there? Right. Um, you know, so yeah. so when you're saying, yeah, there's there's Jewish atheists, there's Taoist atheists, there are there are Buddhist atheists and there are also religious versions of those. So I think Zen Buddhism is great, but there's a lot of kids that got thrown into a monastery because their mama and daddy couldn't take care of them and they're in abusive situations too. Yep. So if I read the book, if I read Suzuki on Zen Buddhism, I'm oh, this is great. But then if I think about what the religious version of that looks like, it's just as abusive as, is some, you know, Catholic orphanage that's, that's trafficking kids out of Mexico. And I've seen that too. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the atrocities come when something that you can tap into that spiritual itch gets monetized. And, and it's very easy to do. People want to slap the, their logo on this experience. But I guess the thing, though, is if we're trying to help people out of cults, 
not providing them some space to have that itch scratched is sometimes what gets them back into the bad behavior Big or time. Yeah, Big they need time. they need somewhere to to but look, it's fun like you're doing it yourself, man. You're having a Bible study in the sense that mm-hmm. when people grew up having Bible studies, they got to talk to people about books. Maybe you're a woman and that's the only kind of book you were ever allowed to read. Like a friend of mine from Leadville, she she did a whole uh, dissertation at Oxford on the Left Behind series. And she thought, I was surprised because she thought it was really cool that there were women in Colorado mountain communities reading it. I said, but you know, it's, it's weird. She goes, oh yeah, it's terrible, right? It's totally sexist and weird beliefs. But it was a way for women that were making their own clothes and they had to have eight babies and they couldn't really you know, go out into the larger world. It was a way for them to have their own autonomy so they could talk about life. And so what you do with this podcast, the reason you've got listeners is people do need to ask these questions and they don't want to do it underneath a steeple where somebody else is in control of their brains. And that's a good, that's a good thing. But a lot of times, you know, I think you have to still like Stacy is a, is a yin yoga teacher and she emphasizes, this is not like, I'm going to try to throw some Hindu deity at you. This is a place for you to just have your own space. Mm -hmm. We don't get that enough sometimes in life. True that. In fact, the recidivism rate, I, I, we don't know exactly. I've seen only one study on this. I can only quote one, which is a 75, 80% recidivism. Um, it seems high to me, but for Scientology, no, for anybody coming out of destructive high control groups, yeah, even Mm -hmm. gangs. I mean, we're talking across the boards, not just religious and they end up cult hopping there's a there's so many terms for this right but basically yeah. it's recidivism whether it's the same group they return to or a different group and yeah I, absolutely and, and yeah. i don't actually have breakdowns on that but and i don't know that we would ever have accurate breakdowns on that because mm-hmm. these groups by design are not transparent so they don't share the information yeah. that we would want um i'm wondering though uh, just the other night, I was uh, just coincidentally going through some statistics on religious, uh, the, the nuns, the rise of the nuns, right? The rise of the, the, I have no religious affiliation. And this is specifically in the United States, although it is seems to be a, maybe a worldwide phenomenon. It's a little hard to tell. But certainly in the United States, um, we have a six to one. For every one person the Catholics are gaining, six are leaving. And for every two that are leaving, sorry, 1.7 that are leaving Protestantism, one's coming in. So that's the, so the sieve isn't quite as, as, as wide there, but it's still a net loss rather than gain. Do you think that it's because of these factors we're talking about that that's happening? Or do you think there's something else going on? Well, depends on which group it is. One of the the things I find with, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses is that when somebody knocks on your door and you can just Google them, it makes it much more difficult for people to take it seriously. I think that's why you've got a lot of empty buildings with Scientology. They got to keep the appearance of being bigger. But, you know, it's it's. The, the, the jig's up really on whether or not that's a safe step for a lot of people. That's right. You know, we've already been primed, but that doesn't mean that something like it can't come along. Mm-hmm. And and the downside is there are these other religious groups that I think are more dangerous right now than any that, that we've seen. They're online. They're white nationalists. They're, they're radicalized mm-hmm. and they spread fast. So, um, so the, you know, so the first thing I would say is it's, it's because of the, um, the internet helping us to see, but the other thing is for, let's say our children, you know, our, our youngest really kind of got us excited about this project because 
uh, our youngest decided that it's not just for, for, for our youngest. He said, it's not that there's this, the good people in the little white church that are either going to be loving of me or not loving of me. But of course I'm the sinner and they want to let me know that they'll receive me just as I am. So just come as I am and they'll fix me, but they will welcome me with open arms into the, to the church. And but they're the good guys and he's the bad guys. And he, and he says, I would love to kind of play this game with you with the, with the religious world that you find yourself working with, but I can't because when I identify with this religious body, it comes with the assumption to all my students that I don't want you in this country. I don't think you have the right to dignity as a, a gay or lesbian, mm-hmm. a, a transgender person, uh, the anti-Semitism, the rejection of science. So I think people realize that the, the lines are being drawn in such a way that whatever you think in your heart, and, and that's why Stacy said we're embarrassed to be called Christian. We're not well, the first. And, and Jeff, it, Jeff recently did a talk um, saying that the church is in secular hell. And I think that like basically you get sort of the Me Too movement and all these things that are coming out and there's a no coming back from some of these if you're a celebrity or whatever, then they're just done for often, right? And the church is kind of experiencing some of that. So because of so much is known these days. People are seeing this and they're like, I don't want nothing to do with that. Yeah. So it's like in the old days, you know, it would help for your real estate business to be a member of the local congregation. Now, in some cases, people might think, well, I'm not trusting that person as much. Our oldest I mean, had, yeah. had friends over and, you know, Jeff was talking to him, just said, what if I just, what if I told you, you know, and he's talking about Jesus and he says, you know, what if you're loved unconditionally? What, you know, and they, would you come to church with me? And they laughed. <laughs> You know, yeah, they, it sounds great, but no, yeah, thank you. That's not for right. me. You, you know, you're cool. <laughs> you're cool. But like, I no, sir, I'm not doing that. And it was it was just unthinkable. Yeah, just laughter, you know, is what felt. Right. So. And I totally get it because like there's a time like we, you know, we, when you get close to it, we, you know, it's hard sometimes for church people to go to church. There are those fears. And I think that's the last part of the answer to your question, which is over time, things that don't work, you have to discard. And if, if you come back, which so many young people do, if you come back from your religious group less happy than you were when you went in that day, if you're feeling drained and crummy and everyone's angry about, you know, they're telling us about evolution or what, if, if everything's just hostile and negative and it's not life-giving, eventually people just, they, they don't become atheists often mm-hmm. explicitly. They just ghost the church. That's what everyone's doing. And it's because they can't say to themselves or their family that they reject it. And they know that if they just ignore it for the rest of their life, then they don't have to necessarily go to hell. So they'll just kind of keep, <laughs> I'm a Christian, you know, but I, but I'm going to keep going, you know, and I, you know, and I get it because if you've, one of the things you got to do for yourself, if you're dealing with a lot of uh, traumatization uh, before you figure out what's going on, you got to get yourself some space, <laughs> you know, get yourself out and then get the perspective. Which again is why we we like to to talk through the the Tao Te Ching because basically all that text is it's ancient Chinese philosophy that says face reality and once you learn to face reality you start to get a lot better at dealing with reality and not making up weird workarounds to facing it exactly and I think that in the atheist community that is the number one objection. I'll just say I'll just I'm just spitballing here, but you know I mean from what, what my what, what I've seen and heard. To, you know, to, and, and, and it's, God, there's just so much to talk about with this, but it, it's, it's, uh, 
it's funny how a lot of the atheist community or former members, as we have acknowledged and know, so in a way, it, it, it's the religious community's own backlash hitting it. Yeah. That is the atheist backlash. And then they fight the atheists, you know, and then there's just opponents. But they were really all in one camp at one point or another. And and there is, I don't know, maybe this is a Bible quote. There's something in there about how, you know, there is nothing, there is no rage like the rage of brothers who are fighting, you know, mm-hmm. the civil war is the worst kind yeah. of war because it's brother against brother. The passion and the anger and the heat and the emotion that is involved in that is 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 all of this in the mix everything it's the abuse it's the trauma it's the lies it's the deceit it's it's things on both ends you know it's the how could i have fallen for this and you know and it just becomes this really toxic mix and i it's and it's difficult sometimes to to separate these things out because you do get militant atheists who are also demonstrating cultic type thinking patterns or or extremist i should say maybe cult, you know, thinking patterns. So, uh, so it's wild. It's a wild scene, you know, trying to, trying to, <laughs> trying to deal with it, trying to help people out in it, trying to, uh, take a position in it that is, you know, somewhat moderate, somewhat truth-based and yet still want to give people the benefit of the doubt to have their beliefs and not be, not be jerks about it. Do you, um, was I was just asking you about the uh, percentages there in the uh, the the info that's now coming out. I think you're right that I think the internet has a lot to do with the lessening numbers of people who are going to church. And I think you're absolutely right about what you just said there. I'm wondering if the and I've been wanting to ask somebody about this for a while. And I think you guys are well qualified to to have to to answer my question here. I have thought quite a bit about this business of the the, the basic, a, a, a basic, maybe not the basic, but a basic idea, extremely basic idea to Christianity is based on what I've read in the Bible, is in Genesis, is this business of knowledge of the fruit of, of the knowledge of, the, of good and evil, mm-hmm. right? You eat this fruit, you get this knowledge. Prior to that, that knowledge didn't exist in the minds of man and woman. And then suddenly it did, and then they're ashamed, and then they're this, and then they're that. A view of this, or a way of, of, of looking at this, and I think this is Gnostic, I'm not sure, is that maybe the snake was the good guy? Yeah, that's definitely Gnostic, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting tradition, right? Right? It's an interesting point, because it makes me think, yeah. well, wait a second. Maybe there's two things that this religion's based on, and this is what I want this is my question. Mm. Ignorance and misogyny. Now, I'm I'm actually honestly asking. I don't I I don't I'm not sure, but I I see a lot of race. I see a lot of ignorance, and I see a lot of yeah. misogyny. Yeah. And then I look to the philosophy of it, and I go, well, it's all a woman's fault, <laughs> and it's all based in ignorance is bliss. If before mm-hmm. we had this knowledge, we were in paradise. We get knowledge that was evil. And, you, and it's not helpful when I see signs outside of churches that say critical thinking <laughs> is the tool of the devil. <laughs> no. so, I still think that the more, yeah, I still think the more dangerous thing is where people will say, hey, we're going to do some critical thinking here. And, um, and what they do is they end up going through a list of weird 
uh, new religious movements and then say, but of course we've got the right one. Cause you were talking about recidivism, helping people get out of fundamentalist Mormonism and then into fundamentalist something else is a, is a play that people make. Yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of a side issue. Um, uh, forgive me, Stacy. I, I do a lot of talking cause I'm a professor and it's what I do for a living. <laughs> yeah. But this, I have an answer to this one cause I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, the, I'm curious uh, if it's yeah, the same one. Same one. Okay. Well, the first, the, I'll, I'll keep it short then the, the, the story of the, the garden, Mm-hmm. is uh, is an interesting it's a really interesting one um the the fact is that that's how it's been interpreted by many many church fathers theologians and the the, the church in general certainly the catholic church up until the middle ages that it is it is we do the thinking for you you're not qualified to do that mm-hmm. and that's i think the big problem that's why i think there's so much sexual abuse i know this seems creepy but i i know better that's when you get to that spot that's where it's dangerous that's why i say unless you really trust the community you can dabble in it but don't just hand your kids over to summer camp without uh really thinking this through you know what are what are the safety valves there yep um, so that's true. A hundred percent true. What do I think actually was going on with the Hebrew text? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a different story prior to the monarchy in ancient Israel. What I think this is saying has more to do with a criticism of civilization. It's a criticism of the, uh, the Babylonian Sumerian world that basically says that God creates the world out of violence and that then God makes babies with, um, with the, well, I'm sorry, a- a- angelic beings, gods make babies with women. And then those are the Kings and they are ruling, whether it's the Pharaoh who's divine or, or you know, the Roman emperor or whatever. Uh, but, but certainly in the ancient near East, mm-hmm. uh, these gods are uh, going to enslave you into the very literally the agricultural revolution. And just at a, I know that not everybody talks this way, but if you look at it, the Old Testament, as Christians call it, is absolutely true. If you take out um, any of the questions about you know the supernatural intervention, kind of like um, like the Iliad, right? Mm. There's there's this the war of the, the Trojan War. All right, this is beneath it, and what's beneath it is our ancestors tended. Uh, this is what the new anthropologists I think are 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 coming to to see that our ancestors tended to be happier and healthier and had longer lives when they were living in hunter-gatherer societies. They had a variegated diet. They ate different kinds of meat and a lot of different food. And uh, they, didn't, uh, they, they didn't work as hard at monoculture. But the way you get civilization is, again, through fear. And religion and monarchy go hand in hand. So the, the way that a king can get you to behave when there's no police force watching you is that fear of the gods being offended. Yep. Well, I think what's going on with the with well, I, what I think what's going on in the Garden of Eden originally, be, say, the original text is to say that people wanted to not be at one with each other in in the hunter gatherer society. We we can see this today in Brazil. There are people that are wearing maybe a piece of twine, maybe nothing, so they're naked and not ashamed. It's once you start to commodify things, human bodies, women's bodies, uh, food. Uh, when we don't share, hunter-gatherer societies have one basic ethical teaching. If you catch, you know, you get an elk, we're all going to eat some of that elk. Mm-hmm. Once you start to accumulate your own stuff, then you have the lowercase g gods being created, the the warlords. And so I read the Genesis account as primarily an indictment against these cities that demanded religious servitude. And that what Abraham is trying to do is say, I am going to directly have a personal 
personal relationship with this Yahweh, but I'm going to do it as somebody who's more in the flow of the natural world. And so I am not going to be awakened to what's good and evil. Well, um, you know, I think Rumi has something to say about this. Uh, he says something like, you know, meet me in this field where we're beyond good and evil. Not that good and, you know, being bad to each other is okay, but that when we think societally of good and evil, uh, it's often these taboos that we cannot connect to actual rational reasons, right? Why do, why do I do this? Because the gods told our ancestors that it's taboo. Um, when you get to that spot, you've divorced your ethics from anything other than superstition mm -hmm. and things go haywire, but it gets it, it reinforces the, the power structure. Uh, and so anyway, I think that then, uh, so, so I believe it's actually kind of a liberating text in, in that it's saying that civilization is, is actually the monster that we were trying to run from. We were afraid. And so we got together kind of like in the, in the walking dead, we, we, we all became Negan because we were afraid or the governor, whatever, you know, in whatever part of the, uh, the walking dead you're into. Right. Um, but that, but that people exchange their freedom for the, for devotion to this lowercase G God. Right. And that the, the story of Adam and Eve is not about women or, 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 or sex or anything uh, in the original. It's about leaving what God had already given people, which is a natural relationship with society. And then what does it say? So now the curse is now you're going to have to work really hard you're going to be laboring and women are going to suffer. They're not going to be, you know, in this um, relaxed environment. And what does, and the other thing that it says is that women will be, will be oppressed by men. Now that doesn't mean, you know, if you take out, if you, if you, if you take out this kind of idea of God saying that this is the way it should be, it's simply saying, well, this is what you get. If you want to have this kind of civilization, you're going to go through uh, warlords who take your daughters for his harem and your young men are going to fight in his wars for his interests. And it's, it's, it's idolatry. Now that what happens, fascinating. You know what, but now what happens is <laughs> then, then King David comes along and those Kings come along and they have to look back at this, this historical Israelite conversation about the, the idea that Kings are a, a capitulation to badness, evil. Mm -hmm. The Samuel, this prophet Samuel says, you don't want Kings. They're like all these other people have Kings. But you don't want that. You want to you want to live free. And they they enslave themselves out of fear. And it, it is in that context that I think that religious people start to uh, incorporate this story of uh, this antiquity into a, an edifice where this serpent becomes Satan. But it's never. It's never said that way in the text. It's just there's a snake talking mm -hmm. right? and then all of a sudden it becomes this devil, which is associated with Lucifer, but Lucifer himself is actually not a character in the Bible. That's supernatural. He's a King. And so by the time of the first century, when Jews and Christians, you know, start to become what they are today, it's in, it's in that milieu um, of trying to make sense of those texts now in, in a post exilic, what we say a post exilic world, plus a world that is influenced by Zoroastrianism mm -hmm. that had this, which really Zoroastrianism brings to Judaism, the concern for the afterlife in what we call the old Testament. You, you've put your hand in the Bible. Most of the Bible has no interest in the afterlife. And all of a sudden everybody's worried about hell, but it was, it seems to be the Persians that kind of introduced that fear um, after the Persian empire had brought about this idea of this great judgment between 
the the force of of good and evil. Anyway, that's a long <laughs> academic explanation. No, I, and that's what I was asking for. So yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you for for giving me that because I here's what I enjoy about that is that you take something that everybody now sort of is on the same page on, and then you go actually. <laughs> They meant something completely different back then. I love that stuff. So I, so from cool. that point of view, I, I love, because of course stories and na- narratives are going to evolve as cultures change over space and time, especially when we're talking about multicultural, multi-generational, right. you know, thousands of years of influence with this. It's the tele, you know, it's, it's, it's the telephone game, right? It's like how right. to, that, and that's taken to the nth degree. So I, so I love uh, uh, hearing stuff like that. And let me say, it, it is the telephone game, but it's also a really fun, subversive move that religious people that are suffering will sometimes use, mm-hmm. which is like the African-American um, use of these stories to be completely subversive of their oppression is, is I think, delightful and as, as much as it's poignant. My, my friend, Michael Borne, who is an African-American poet and hip hop artist, was um, uh, recently did an album, or he recently released a, a song uh, based on a track that he had found from an old, like one of the earliest mm-hmm. recordings of somebody singing about Samson. And if you know the story of Samson, Samson is blinded and he's enslaved and he just destroys the whole building and, and kills everybody, including himself within it. Very politically dangerous, but because it's from the Bible, they're allowed to sing it in front of, you know, white people. And I think this is maybe partly an explanation of kind of what we do and why I think there is probably, or there probably should be a place for what we do, which is to say um, we are translating liberation and freedom to people whose language has always been that Christianese. Um, There's a danger in it, you know, but there's also a way in which this, uh, this is important. So when we say like, be here now, this is like that hippie thing. Yeah. But it also is something that Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Well, yeah, we often say you're here now. Yeah. Actually, you're, yeah. Which is a little different because, you know, and you're it's here not a now. Command. It's not, yeah. Be here now. Like, how do I be here now? No, you are here now. Yeah. It's more but of an I'm, observation. Hey, <laughs> so, you're here. Right. And one thing, and it is pretty quick, um, but when I, when you were bringing that up about knowledge of good and evil yeah. and ignorance. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, that, yeah, I, yeah, take on it. I just Tell want me. one short thing is, and I'll go to Lao Tzu for this is there was something that we were recently, um, you know, translating. And, and basically the idea was the, um, to uh, like, to know when you don't know is the height of sanity to know. And I can't remember the exact wording, but, but, but to know and, and essentially not acknowledge that, you know, so you're, you're not admitting the truth is the depth of unhealthy thinking. Mm. And so I think that the unforgivable sin really is when we do suppress the truth, what we do know inside, what we do know, and we're just going to ignore that. That is where it comes. We have so much angst inside of ourselves. That's where, you know, you start to get anxiety, over certain things. I mean, you also get anxiety for other reasons, but I do think that there is with g- gaining knowledge also comes the responsibility of being truthful to that knowledge that you're gaining. And when you suppress that truth, there's you have to just live in this hypocrisy. And I think that that is that really is sort of the unforgivable sin. Yeah. I could not agree with you more on that point. Absolutely. Because I'm a, obviously, you know, I identify as critical thinker. 
Uh, it's very important to me, right, that, that we get across to people that they are free to think, that they are free to have their own thoughts, and that those thoughts are okay, and that they can contemplate things on their own terms, and that that's okay too. And yet that seems to be a message that runs diame is diametrically opposed to many denominations. And Most. Almost mm -hmm. everybody is trying to get you to not do that. Right. So how do we, and it seems that you guys are walking this, this edge here, this, this line between, you know, having religious faith and belief and believing that there is something more and, that, and, that, and taking comfort in that, and yet not making it into this control operation, which, so mm -hmm. which is the organized religion phase of, you know, or, or, or part of my, my breakdown of it, right, is that's mm -hmm. where I have all of my objections. I, I literally don't care what you believe. It's in your head. How could I? How should I? Why would I? How, how you manifest your beliefs, as long as it's not hurting anybody else, what do I care? Mm -hmm. Organized religion, that's where all the abuses start coming in. Also, on the, on the point, uh, let me ask you this. Um, moral authority. I think that might also be something that the churches are losing quickly. Yeah. Right? With all of the exposure. I mean, even yesterday, we we're hearing about how the Pope knew. In yeah. head headlines, right, that this big, huge guy who was really responsible for some nasty stuff. Well, of course the Pope knew. How could he not? Of course yeah. that went up there. I mean, you know, duh, surprise. But then you get it confirmed. Okay, well, he did. From that point forward, I have a very hard time as a cult expert saying that it's not a cult. That's right. It's you just know? really, really big. <laughs> well, and that's really, the thing. Yeah. Really old. Yeah. That's right. Because because I've always taken care to try to show respect and try to show that it's not all one big mass that is just bad. I, I don't want to color the, the, the lines that way, right? I think there's nuance here. I think there are shades of gray, and I think that not all Catholics are cultists and not all priests are pedophiles. But it seems that structurally, organizationally, this church has chosen self-preservation over the law, over common decency, over child welfare. And that was a gross miscalculation that was not made by any one individual who's probably not even around anymore. But then the tradition starts and it rolls out and this is how the organization runs and the popes just kind of do what the last pope did and then they do what the last pope did because it's easier and it's safer until it's not. And now we find they're six to one. Six are leaving yeah. for everyone coming on board, specifically with the Catholics. Do you think that is the main thing that's going on with the religious loss that we're seeing in that group? Yeah, my friend, um, uh, well, uh, Hobie thinks he's a friend of mine. He's a great journalist locally and uh, I've interviewed him uh, on occasion. Uh, Gustavo Ariano, who was in, I think at the time, he was investigating a lot of the scandals with the uh, diocese here in Orange County, California, um, related to the Roman Catholic Church. And we were kind of talking through this and, and uh, he, re, you know, he refused after doing his investigation to ever really go back. But he still has a St. Jude on his keychain and a Virgin of Guadalupe, you know, maybe tattoo. I forget, right. you know, um, and those are also very important to him. And he'd said, and I, I was kind of trying to tease this out. Like, so, so you, you seem very Catholic, mm -hmm. 
but you refuse to ever have anything to do with the structure. And part of it is, you know, he was explaining that as a Mexican-American in his family tradition, that's kind of um, how they started, right? Like this thing was imposed on them. And so just like I was saying with the African-American oh, use sure. of the text, right? Yeah. Like the Virgin of Guadalupe is a way of, of maintaining their, their autonomy against the, the, the conquest, so, okay, I'll, you need me to worship uh, Mary, but like, wink, wink, I know who this is. This is our old mother, you know, um, so that there is something that that is pervasive underneath those nuns and sometimes maybe not healthy either. Right. Maybe you'd say like, well, they're still they're still carrying these latent uh, superstitions and beliefs. But I think that where we start, and I really appreciate this, Chris, because you've been very hospitable to us. We're not, <laughs> you know, this is great. But um, I think that there is there is stuff to, to be hashed out you know, on whether or not any of these ideas are helpful or not. But the, the starting place has to be knocking off the nonsense just because something is old and dignified and it's been a part of history doesn't mean it's not terrorizing people. Exactly. <laughs> and if, if we can all pick on, we all can pick on the, the Scientologists, but all of these religious groups, even the most sane of them, can be very dangerous in the wrong hands and often even well-intentioned people. Yeah. Well, money, yeah. power, and glory go a long way, and a lot of people want at least one of those, if not more, right? Exactly. Yeah, and if you're not rich, you can have the Holy Spirit, and <laughs> I'll have the anointing, and I'm going to tell you what God thinks. That's right. That's right. And I think we've seen the the most gross um, exhibition or dramatization of that in televangelism. Yeah, I, sure. I, I think that's where they, you know, I mean, the Joel Austins of the world. If those guys, if there is a hell and they're not and they're not burning in the ninth level of it, then there is no cosmic justice. That's that's how yeah. I see it. But make no mistake, what you just said is is straight up true theologically. If in fact, you know, I mean, if in fact there's some, there is this kind of judgment. Jesus himself says this is what it's going to be like. The people who thought they were on the outside all of a sudden find. No, no, no. You're in the club. You're in the family. Those people that had the logo of Christianity that were perpetrating all of this, they will find that their logo does them no good. Yes. And even if this is just a, a thought experiment, this this is the, the parable of the sheep and the goats that Jesus is, is putting together. Mm. It's a powerful one. In other words, if if you rejected Catholicism, and I'll just I'll say this straight up as a Christian, if you rejected Catholicism because you were abused in the context of Catholicism, or you saw that going on and you left, that is holy. That is righteous. If there's a God in heaven, God's going to, and God does rewarding, then you don't just have a right to leave that church. You have a moral obligation to leave that church for the sake of God. Listen to Jesus and get the heck out or whatever, right? You know, exactly. like listen to your, exactly. listen to your prophet. That see now that's the kind of religious messaging that I can get behind, right? And and here's the wonderful thing about talking to folks like you and why I want to do it more often is because you can see that abuse is abuse. Yeah. And yet you can also appreciate the the benefits or the brighter side maybe of religious belief, of having faith, of having some ideas about things that make life make sense to you and fulfill emotional needs. And that's a very important distinction that unfortunately, because of cognitive dissonance and because of people's basic fear of standing up and standing out, which is not religious at all, it's just people. <laughs> because of those two things, though, 
we get far too many believers who side with the abuse, who go, well, there's nothing yeah. can be done about it. Well, it's, you know, it's one off. Well, it's and they and they sort of motivatedly reasoning, reason their way out of it. And that's a shame because we need more people who are willing to speak up like you guys are and are willing to actually walk some walk with this. Because I find it illuminating personally when you tell me things like the Samson story or songs being used by black people to openly, blatantly decry their oppression right in front of whitey, you know, and using religion to do it. I find that very empowering and very uh, a great example of where religion can be a positive force for social change. But too often these days, we keep seeing organized religion seeming to stand in the way of social justice or change. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, it's a little frustrating, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, and, and again, if, and if that's the case, I mean, I think that you have, I think all of your listeners have, if they're, if you're religious, you have a religious obligation to, to walk away. I would argue you have a religious ob obligation to walk away from your community. If it is standing in the way of justice, it, it is at that point, something has so, so malfunctioned that you, you have, you've made a mistake exactly, <laughs> and you need to re you need to reevaluate it. I I'd say for us, our, our, our commitment, you know, I mean, on Monday mornings, I feel like an atheist. <laughs> I don't even know what it means. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's a weird psychological question. What do I believe in inside, you know? Um, but, um, but for us, I think it was really like the reason we stick with this, this Jesus fellow is that uh, not that it actually will, will help you have more peace. I think it could hurt physically because of the way I see what Jesus is doing is something that's maybe like the honors version of, of a, of a centering. And that is, if you want to just be sane, find something like, you know, um, uh, non-religious yoga, uh, calm breathing techniques, uh, the, the Tao Te Ching to center yourself, to re-engage your own sense of um, agency, to start to take your own feelings and thoughts seriously. That's all you really need for you. To me, what Jesus does is he goes beyond Buddhism and Stoicism and says, in love, we're going to try to change something. And some days I'm not sure it, um, it can work. Like, I think maybe it's a lost cause some, some days. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the thing for me that all, the only reason I'm going to stick with this Jesus fellow is because I think what he was saying is that we need to keep facing death until um, the cruelty, whether it's statist or religious cruelty, uh, until it's gone, we take a vow to keep fighting it. It's for me kind of like we're, we're we kind of describe what we're on. Uh, our, our journey is more like um, being uh, Jesus Bodhisattvas. The, the tradition of the Pure Land Buddhist Bodhisattva is this. And I think it's beautiful. I refuse to go into heaven so long as one sentient being is left out. Nice. And I kind of it, it may be, you know, a symbolic level. That's kind of what we've been doing with the, with the students. It's like, all right, this is cool. There's like, there's this redemption, there's this healing, there's forgiveness. But if somebody is going to be excluded and, and harmed, uh, we don't want any part of it. And I think I, we need, well, I guess we're calling anybody who's listening. If you're religious, join with us <laughs> in this, yeah. that we're going to wow. go on strike from the nonsense, if that's what it takes. 
Well, I'll tell you, if I was ever going to point somebody in the direction of religion, I would point them in your direction because this no, that's is, too kind. <laughs> well, I just got to say, I mean, I have had some pretty, uh, you know, not on my podcast, but in private, in real in life, life. <laughs> I've, I've, I've had some, I've had some pretty intense conversations with with believers, and and um, and of course, I've exposed and talked about, you know, religious abuse in some detail here. I mean, there are homeschooling programs. There are people, oh, you know, yeah. there, there's stuff going on in the United States that is just absolutely disgusting. Yeah. And um, and you can't help but look at that manifestation of what they are saying is coming out of this book and what they are raised to believe and look at the abuse that's rained down on the wives, on the kids, and go, yeah, this is a good thing. There's no way you can do that. So yeah. it's it's refreshing for me. And necessary, I think, and hopefully for my viewers as well, to see that there is a brighter side to this, and that and that it can be experienced at a level that doesn't justify or rationalize or excuse any of that abuse, and yet you can still hold on to a strong belief about it. Mm-hmm. That's important. And I wanted to. And if there was any reason why I reached out to you guys, it was on that theme that I wanted to do so. And you've actually proven that that's exactly where you're at. And I and I'm very very happy that I did reach out to you to talk to you about this stuff. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely, guys. Um, how do? Let me just let the viewers know. I'm going to put links to your stuff below. How? What? What would you? If people wanted to reach out to you, what would be the single best way to do it? Can I just give you two? Give me two. Yeah. Yeah. Just protectyournoggin.org. <laughs> then you can, if you start there, you can see all our social media stuff. Um, and we've got our uh, protectyournoggin.org. And that's just the emails and so forth. But nobody's following us on Dow Surfers uh, at uh, our uh, at our Instagram. So I'm trying to get the younger people. They don't, they don't care about Facebook mm-hmm. and all that other stuff. So right. it's Dow Surfers with a T at Dow Surfers. Perfect. All right, cool. And Stacy, did you have anything else you wanted to contribute? Because I did feel like it was the guys talking a lot here. <laughs> no worries. No, I, I'm, I'm great. But thank you very much for having us. And, and it's been wonderful. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much. And, and like I said, both of you guys have been absolutely wonderful here. Um, folks out there, any listeners or viewers here, if you are enjoying this channel, enjoying what I'm doing, consider joining me on Patreon. Uh, I could very much certainly use the assistance at this time. Uh, Otherwise, please like, share, uh, get around this channel, this podcast, what I'm doing here, because I I just am trying to spread some calm and uh, common sense and some critical thinking into a somewhat turbulent world right now. Thanks for coming along. Thanks for inviting me into your home. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.